the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Are you able to think independently no matter what is going on in your life? Or do you find yourself believing that you're a victim of circumstance? Do you look outside for external validation or to derive pleasure? Today's guest, Michael Bernard Beckwith, says that you have the ability to create inner conditions that will enable you to grow, expand, thrive, and express your highest potential and grander vision for your life. According to Michael, the answer is you. Michael is the founder and spiritual director of the Agape International Spiritual Center and author of Life Visioning and Spiritual Liberation. He's appeared on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, The Dr. Oz Show, and in his own PBS special, The Answer Is You. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Joan, it is my joy to be with you and everyone who is listening. So, Michael, I want to begin our discussion with an example that I've heard you share because I think it illustrates what we're going to discuss today. And I think it provides a clear picture that everyone can relate to. So this is the story of the rose seed. The rose seed spends days, weeks or months in a packet or in someone's pocket or it may blow in the wind for a period of time. Then one day, the seed lands in the perfect environment. It has the right conditions. There's fertile soil, proper nutrition, sunlight, rain, and and from that right condition, the seed thrives and grows into a beautiful rose bush. Michael, that story, I believe, illustrates what happens in our life. Because as you said, we all have seeds within. We have goals and dreams and visions and desires. And those seeds, when they're met with the right conditions, can grow as well. Now, we have these seeds, but many people use reasons for why they don't grow. They say they're victim of circumstance. They may have the wrong family or maybe a limited education. And And you know, the list goes on. And these are stories that we tell ourselves. It's what keeps us from thriving. So why do you believe we keep those stories alive? Why do we keep repeating them to ourselves? This is a a powerful question. And when people understand that they're addicted to the story they tell themselves, that they're addicted to their, their historical self, the things that have happened to them, their interpretation of what has happened it ultimately becomes excuses, perceptions, and the filters by which they view life from. And when individuals actually produce certain toxic chemicals when they retell the story over and over and over again, and they become addicted to those chemicals and the state that they're producing. Now, just as that seed is magnificent, and it's only searching for a proper condition to evolve, we are a perfect spiritual idea held in the mind of the infinite. And we have the capacity to create the right condition for our potential to unfold. But we have to give up the story of shame and blame. We have to give the story of they did it to me. We have to give the story of give up the story of being a victim. And we have to begin to embrace that there's a part of us that has never been hurt, harmed, or endangered in any way. It doesn't have any history whatsoever. And the only identity that it has is light and luminosity as infant potential. We begin to bump into that part Part of ourselves as little pinpricks of light and we're able to break free from the story 
Now, people are afraid to break free from the story because that's the only identity they know. They know these things happened to them, and, and that became their identity. But there's a greater identity, a, an eternal identity, that people are afraid to come into contact with because the part of us that has been deemed the protector of our identity, the ego, doesn't want us to flee from that limited point of view. When you start to flee from that limited point of view, all heaven breaks out. <laughs> the days begin to be calamitous in our life. Now, Michael, the terms indigenous versus endogenous, how do they relate to our life? Well, there's a, three words, indigenous, exogenous, and endogenous. Indigenous, we all know about indigenous plants, like a palm tree, as an example, is indigenous to warm weather, sunshine. It wouldn't flourish in Antarctica. Exogenous means that our life, our environment is determined from outside of ourselves. And endogenous means that we create our own inner climate and our own inner condition. Now, as spiritual beings having a human incarnation, we are, in, we are endogenous, which means we have the capacity to create our own environment for that seed of excellence to grow. So it means that we're no longer allowing the external world to pull us around like a rag doll or a puppet. We no longer live in reaction to the external world of appearances. We are endogenous, which means that we can become quiet. We can begin to visualize, we begin to practice life visioning, we begin to study, we begin to write out our calling, our dreams, our visions. We can begin to create an inner environment so strong that it becomes stronger than the external pulls on us that wants to pull us into mediocrity, pull us into worry, doubt, and fear. We create our own environment from within ourselves. Now, right there, people can catch that. They can immediately begin to come out of being a victim of circumstance. Immediately they can begin to say, you know what? I create my own inner environment. I'm going to wake up and leap into joy and gratitude and then watch how my life begins to change. You know, Michael, everything that you just described, I learned that the hard way and I learned it firsthand. I had a totally different life. I had this life one day and the next day it was gone. And from that, was the seed that we talked about. Everything I'm doing today is from that place that I was. It all grew from there. And I've learned that there are blessings and opportunities and challenges. And as I said, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if, if I hadn't experienced that loss. But when we're in that survival mode and we're sometimes literally fighting for our life, just struggling to hang on for the next moment, how do we find those blessings? What advice do you offer to help someone move through these challenges and emerge stronger and wiser? Right. We, we, we don't say that it's easy. We say that it's simple. And so if, if a person, when they begin to try this as a practice, if they begin to wake up, and the moment they put their feet on the ground and they take a breath and they begin to think to themselves, I'm grateful to be alive and I'm grateful that all of my needs are met. From that particular moment, all that you need to admit, because that's all that you need at that particular moment. And that begins to become habitualized within us. Then the, our perception of life begins to change. And we go through, I teach three stages. The first stage is we just see the world as, as it is described to us by the mass media. Lack, limitation, fear, doubt, worry, bigotry, hate, wars, mass incarceration, terrorism. There's all kinds of stuff that go on in that particular world as is described by the media. And people agree and experience that. But something begins to happen when you begin to move into a sense of gratitude. You begin to see the world differently. That's stage two. You see opportunities. You start to see possibilities. You start to see your assignment, like what is it that's mine to do in this world that I'm now beginning to see differently. And as you continue to walk in that direction with high praise for every breath that you take, so that the feeling tone that you're carrying is all of my needs are met. Then you move into the third stage. You begin to see a different world. First, you see the world as it appears to be. Secondly, you see the world differently, opportunities, possibilities, potential. And then thirdly, you actually begin to see a different world. There's a different world that's been overlaid by the filters of humanity. And people experience those filters. You actually see the world that is held in the mind of the infinite. And then you're pulled by that world. And you ask the question, what am I about to say, what am I about to do? Is it represent the new world that I'm beginning to see? Or is it the same old, same old from the world of effects? Poor me, not good enough, unworthy, there's not enough. And with practice, 
were able to stabilize in the last two stages, seeing the world differently and living in a different world. And miracles began to take place in our life. And so if someone's struggling, their back is against the wall, one has to stop, find one thing to be grateful for, and let that feeling become big. And then the law will wrap itself around that feeling and opportunities will shortly follow. So, Michael, we're doing all of this internal work and, and we're getting our head in the game, so to speak. And then all of a sudden, somebody on the outside says something to to put you down or to tell you why you can't do it. So all this work that you do on the inside, in a moment, it feels like it could be ripped away from you with just one comment from someone who is telling you why you can't dream big. So what do you advise that we do to shelter ourselves or to shield ourselves from that type of external negativity? We have to become aware that the closer you get to making a sacred vow for your own excellence, the haters will show up. Mediocrity always attacks excellence. And whenever you become close to breaking free from your paradigm, then they show up because you make people uncomfortable because you are leaving the comfort zone and the convenience zone that most people are living in. And so they unconsciously feel that you're about to leave them. And so they attack. But really, unconsciously, they're just afraid you're going to leave them. And so the closer you get to excellence, the more and more people talk about you. They only attack someone that's on the move, that's trying to do something with their life. And so when that begins to happen, you have to say to yourself, the temporal self or the historical self, it creates a false god by creating happiness by what other people think about him or her. You know, those people, if they love me, I'm happy. If they don't love me, I'm sad. Well, you just made those people false gods. And the moment that they begin to turn on you, your God, your whole world has fallen apart. So you have to develop a relationship with yourself. And you have to win every argument with your mind about the excellence that's trying to happen, that the, the genius is trying to unfold, so that you become, after a while, unconcerned about what others are thinking about you. I've been speaking with Michael Bernard Beckwith. If you would like to get more information about Michael or his work, you can visit michaelbernardbeckwith.com or agapilive.com. Michael, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What do you want to leave our listeners with? One of the things that um, you brought up um, in your original questions that you sent was um, we're not here, as I like to say, we're not here to get or to get it. We're here to learn it. Now, when you begin to share vibrationally, that you're not here to get anything from the world because the world doesn't have anything for you. You're here to give your gifts to the world. You're here to shine your light. You're here to allow your genius to unfold so that you can activate your gifts, talents, and capacities and to share them. Now, when you become very wholehearted that you're here to share, that you're here to give your gifts, you're here to shine, you're beginning with the premise that I have something. If you feel that you have something, the universe responds to that and more is given. If you feel you're in lack, then that which you have is taken away because you're using the law in reverse. And so if you wake up and you say to yourself, I'm not here to get anything from the world, but I'm sure here to get something. I'm, here sh I'm sure here to shine. I'm sure here to let that which is within me as an endogenous being to flow. Great things begin to happen. And so I, I want everyone to know that they are significant. They have meaning for the presence of God has never made a meaningless act. They are unique. And in that uniqueness, they have a mandate to uncover discover, activate their gifts, and to share them, and to claim the good life, the prosperous life, the philanthropic life, the entrepreneurial life, the creative life, claim it, and the universe will open up doors that you don't even know are there. Michael, thank you so much for being here with us today. What you teach truly transforms lives, and, and this knowledge gives us tools to tap into what already exists within us. What we forget is there, and... It enables us to own our power and live to our potential. So it's been a joy having you here. Thank you so much. It is my absolute joy to be with you. And God bless everyone listening. And don't give up. Keep growing. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. 
call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Albert Einstein said, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. Today's guest, Christy Beam, learned that lesson after her 10-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a rare incurable disease. Just when the family had lost hope, an accident occurred, which led to miraculous events that baffled medical specialists, restored the family's faith, and inspired their community and now the world. Christy is the author of the book, Miracles from Heaven, A Little Girl, Her Journey to Heaven, and Her Amazing Story of Healing. Their story has been made into a major motion picture. Welcome, Christy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Christy, your story is so amazing. Every time I read it or see it, it makes me cry because I'm a believer that there are miracles around us every day. So tell us about your daughter, Anna. What happened that led to her diagnosis? Oh, goodness. Um, Annabelle was sick for four and a half years. And when she was about four years old, she started having what we called tummy troubles. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. She had um, a couple of major surgeries. We almost lost her. Um, She was very sick on 10 medications a day, taken several times throughout the day. Her pain level was a 10. Um, She lived on the sofa in a fetal position with a heating pad on her stomach. Just a very, very sick little girl. And um, then as time went on, um, Annabelle and I would fly back and forth to Boston to see a specialist. And um, eventually, Annabelle had shared with me that she was ready to die and wanted to go to heaven and live with Jesus where there's no more pain. And it was then that um, a miraculous event came into our life, and she had um, a tragic accident that turned out to be of the greatest miracles ever. And so, Christy, when you were going through all of that experience that you just described, and, and you watched your daughter in pain, and you really didn't feel like there was hope because before that you were you were a very faithful person so what was going on with your faith during that time and I asked this Christy because so many people when they're faced with these types of challenges their faith isn't as strong as it had been before so what did you experience um you know personally I didn't necessarily lose my faith but I did struggle I did have times of challenge where I did question God and ask him where where are you are you here are you seeing this are you with me um I'm not feeling you near me um so I did have those times where I kind of questioned and wondered and I think that that's okay I think that everybody goes through those times in their life and I think that that he knows that we're going to go through those challenges and um so for me, it was um, just wondering and grasping to the thought that I'm not alone in this. You are in charge, right? Because I can't do this. So, Christy, you're going through this and, you know, basically you're accepting that this is the life that your daughter's going to have and, and your family is coming to terms with it. And then, as you said, you had that accident in the tree. She actually fell into the tree. How long was she there when they were trying to rescue her? She was. Um, entombed in the base of the tree for five hours, and it took the firefighters about three hours to get her out. Okay, so she's in the tree for that length of time. Mm -hmm. She fell down three stories, landed on her head, and yet there was no head injury, no broken bones, no bleeding, no internal injuries. Mm -hmm. What did the doctors tell you to describe that? You know, the whole entire time there was a helicopter on the premises with a doctor and a nurse, and they were telling me, as well as the paramedics that were on site, you know, we've never had anybody fall 30 feet and not suffer paralysis or broken bones. We want you to know what you're going to see when she gets out. We just want you to be prepared. Um, so, of course, I was just praying like crazy. Um, but they later, again, it was it was um, restated to me in the ER. They ran every test they possibly could. And um, one of the doctors actually said, Jesus must have been with that little girl in that tree because we have never had anybody fall 30 feet and not suffer paralysis or broken bones. So then she goes through this, and not only did she survive that, but all of the things that she was experiencing before the accident were miraculously gone. Right. Okay, then she tells you that she was told she would be healed. 
when she said that to you, what was going through the minds of you and your husband? Well, she didn't actually say that he told her she was going to be healed. Um, what he actually said to her was, um, when the firefighters get you out, there will be nothing wrong with you. So um, in real life, um, which is why I feel like the book Miracles from Heaven kind of chronicles the story in addition to the movie, and we talk about how she just shares um, that he said it not quite so obvious, and so that's why it didn't really click in our brains for a while, uh, for a short time, that she was totally healed. What's interesting about the story, Christy, every day in our life, as I said, I believe in miracles, and there are things that happen that I, I think we miss, and when you go back and you look at your story, because it's such a, a glaring example of of the power of God and the, and the power of faith and, and healing. And, and when you look at it and you piece together all those little things that we say, oh, what a coincidence. When you piece those all together, you really see this, just this beautiful story that we all get to live every day if we allow it to happen. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. I feel like there are small miracles going on around us daily and, you know, during my struggle, I tell people that I had my head down, just pushing through, putting one foot in front of the other, just trying to get through the day. But whenever I had an opportunity to reflect back, there were so many things going on and um, that I was not in control of. And the entire time, God had his hand over everything. And there were so many small miracles that he was orchestrating that I feel like had I looked up back then, I would have noticed and that would have given me the hope that I needed to propel me forward. In an interview, I saw you share the story of why you even wrote this book. Would you share that with our listeners? Well, you know, God laid it on my heart to write the book, Miracles from Heaven, and I audibly said, no, God, I'm, I don't do that. I'm not a writer. Um, and then a friend met me for lunch and I had told no one about him laying it on my heart, and she sat down, and one of the first things she said was, um, God has laid it on my heart. You need to write a book about Annabelle's journey, and I was floored. Mm -hmm. um, then we met about a month later, and I had done nothing about the urging, and um, she sat down and said, you know, Christy, it's not a matter of if you're going to write it. It's a matter of when. God wants to know when are you going to get started. And literally that day, I went out and bought a laptop and started writing. Mm -hmm. Christy, what is it that you want everyone to know? You know, I want everyone to know that there are still miracles that go on around you daily, that the, the movie Miracles from Heaven is just a, a book, uh, I mean, a movie um, that encourages and gives hope and inspires you to see those small miracles around you and see how easy it is to see those small things going on around you. The book is Miracles from Heaven, A Little Girl, Her Journey to Heaven, and Her Amazing Story of Healing by Christy Beam. If you would like to get more information about the book, about Christy and her work, you can visit ChristyBeam.com. Christy, in our final moments, tell us a little bit about your work now. Um, I am just enjoying the opportunity to um, to speak to people and to encourage them to look around them and to press forward with hope. Um, one of the greatest things that Annabelle shared was that um, God has a plan for everyone. Um, and she says, you know, we weren't just made for fun. We were made for a purpose. And I just encourage people to push forward and know that, that there is someone in control. And if you don't feel like you are, then that's good because someone else who has a bigger plan is. Christy, thank you so much for being here with us. As I said in the beginning, every time I watch the story, I cry. It is such a beautiful story because as a mother, I can feel what you felt when you were going through that pain. And then to just see those miracles, I get goosebumps. So if you are looking to be inspired and to just see the miracles of life, I, I highly recommend that you check out Miracles from Heaven. And Christy, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We'll be right back. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison.
to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an autism mom's coach and founder of Mom's Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's Autism Hope Mindset System empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her Spectrum child. Heidi is here today to discuss the tragedy narrative of autism. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan, for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, Heidi, you've been working with moms that are dealing with the autism journey, and you say that, ironically, the factor that causes the most suffering is the one that's invisible to most people. What do you mean by the tragedy narrative of autism? So the the tragedy narrative of autism causes so much unnecessary suffering that moms of kids on the spectrum experience every day. We are all immersed and trained in many societal narratives from the moment that we're born. And these are the messages and language around any particular issue, the invisible beliefs and assumptions and programming that are always running in the background. So if I say the word cancer, for example, as having a societal tragedy narrative, I think people understand that very quickly. The fear that clutches your throat right away, your breathing becomes shallow, you feel the energy and life force drained from your body, you stop thinking, you just feel this dread. Because the word tragedy, the concept of it, catastrophe, disaster, don't you just want to scream and run away? But you can't if it's something that you're living. And it also demonstrates the, the power of language, using the word tragedy, the power of communication on how we perceive and how we feel and our energy, and in fact, what we end up manifesting. Because what we see and believe is the foundation that we move forward into. So there's a distinction between the actual circumstance of something and the emotional and cognitive response to that circumstance. So yes, autism is life-changing and it is a challenge, but is it automatically a tragedy? So if you try different language to replace the word tragedy, like the challenge narrative of autism, you get a sense of, of the difference in that energy. If I replace challenge or tragedy with purposeful, the purposeful narrative of autism, and then let me even play a little more the hero narrative of autism. So you can feel the difference in your energy, in your body, which word makes you feel stronger and stand taller with your shoulders back and you make eye contact and smile because the tragedy language makes us desperate. When we hear that, we go into fear. Our brains, the amygdala kicks in, we go into survival mode and all the options that we can perceive are fight, flight, freeze, appease because higher level thought or connection with other people flies out the window when we're scared. So tell you very quickly an example of this. My husband and I had gone to an autism conference, saw a video that looked like it was it was uh, showed by a therapist showing this particular therapy that she did. And it looked like before our very eyes in this 10 minute video, she was curing this particular child of autism by touching his foot in a certain way. And my husband and I were so panicked about my son's autism. We looked at each other and we said, hey, We have to take him to this. And we took the money out of the bank and went to San Francisco for an intensive, expensive, two-week intensive therapy, only at the end for it to not be effective. And we had wasted two weeks of hope and money and trust, and we were a mess. So the bottom line is the tragedy narrative is not a neutral thing. It can really be very powerful and draw you to do things that are not in your own or your child's best interest. So Heidi, what can someone do to manage this narrative? First, they need to breathe and calm themselves down. The second thing is to pay attention. Are you asking the right questions of the right people? Is this too good to be true? What's going on here? Use other people to be a calmer check and balance to make sure that we're not unknowingly operating out of fear, out of that tragedy narrative. You know, learn from other people's mistakes and identify if you are living within a tragedy narrative. Notice the language that you're using. Is it fear-based language? Notice your body's reactions. Is your jaw clenched? Is your breathing shallow? 
are you even thinking at all or you're just reacting or running? Because you won't make good long-term decisions if you're coming from fear, if you're coming from that tragedy narrative. The great news with this, though, is that once you are aware that you're defaulting to that tragedy narrative, you can choose a different, more empowering narrative to align with the circumstances you're facing. Change the script, change the language choose to learn from autism and not be its victim. When you choose your role, when you choose to step out of that tragedy narrative, you can choose to be the hero as you write your life story moving forward and not be a victim of that narrative or any other narrative that's not of your choosing. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or about Heidi and her work, you can visit momsspectrumoasis.com. And as always, to hear more from Heidi, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Heidi. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Every child who has ever played baseball has dreamt of being in the World Series. Today's guest, Ron Darling, had that dream too, and he got to live it. But as many of us have learned, dreams don't always turn out as imagined. Ron is the author of the book, Game 7, 1986, Failure and Triumph in the Biggest Game of My Life. He's here to talk about what he experienced that night in Shea Stadium and the lessons he's learned by reflecting on that time when the world was watching. Welcome, Ron. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Ron, this is really an honor for me to have you here. I grew up in New Jersey, and I spent a lot of time at Mets games. Reading your book, it brought back so many great memories, because I remember Game 6 of 86 when we were at a comedy club in New Jersey, and they kept interrupting the comedian set to bring us updates, because, you know, we didn't have cell phones. And I had forgotten about that until I read this book. So, while your book focuses on an event that took place in the game of baseball, there are so many life lessons that can be applied to just about anything a person is experiencing. So for our listeners who may not be big baseball fans or may even be too young to remember what happened 30 years ago, let's set the stage. You're a starting pitcher for the New York Mets and you're in the World Series playing the Boston Red Sox. In game six, when it looked like the Mets were going to lose and it was going to be over, they had this amazing comeback, which would bring a game seven and you're scheduled to start in that game. So take it from there. What were you thinking going into game seven? Well, what was interesting, and as you said, I, I feel bad for the comic now who interrupted <laughs> in the set, but, uh, um, uh, you know, most people believe the world series ended after game six, after the ball went through Buckner's legs, mm-hmm. but there was another night to play. And, uh, the interesting part about it is that the initial game, which was supposed to be the next night on Sunday, was rained out. And so there were two days of 48 hours between that time and the time I had the pitch. What was interesting about when they won the World Series, there was no one uh, happier running on that field and jumping on top of each other. Uh, the parade the next day, no one had more fun than I did during that day. But two days later, because of my start in Game 7, which wasn't great, I kind of hit a wall in my apartment. And I think that for a lot of athletes or a lot of people, they love when they envision themselves in the most opportune time. And for a pitcher, it's pitching Game 7. And uh, I didn't come through. And it was really, honestly, the first time in my entire life as as an athlete that I didn't come through. And I, I was trying to figure out, why was that? How did that happen? Why why didn't I come through? And I, I think there were two things that I got from writing the book, and it was a very cathartic experience, was one, a little bit of, uh, and this was on me, uh, a paralysis by analysis. Sometimes we can make things that are very simple and much more complicated than they are, and I certainly did that. Mm-hmm. And then the Boston Red Sox were a good ball club decided that uh, uh, this young right-hander who's going to start three times in 11 days against them was not going to have a successful game seven. Well, and you know, and as you said, you've had 30 years to reflect on that evening and you have gained valuable insight. And one of the things that you write about in the book is fear. And and it's this fear that you didn't belong there. And this is something that so many of us experience, this fear that we're going to be, you know, quote unquote, found out. And for someone 
like me, who's looking at you and, and all that you had achieved at that point, it's really difficult to imagine that you had those thoughts. So if you could go back with what you know now, and, and this is a lesson for someone who's thinking like that in whatever it may yeah. be, what would you tell yourself to over, overcome those fears? Yeah, I, I think that self-worth is the most important gift that we all have, you know, and I think that, you know, we go through different times in our life where we feel we have more self-worth worth or less. I would have told myself that, boy, you know what? You are amazing. You've done a lot in a, a short amount of time. And, uh, and, and really, uh, instead of getting worked up about this start that you're going to make, why don't you just enjoy the process and be in the present? I think that's what I would have told myself. In the book, I write a story about a friend of mine whose mom was a teacher and whose dad was a post office worker. And he had a big interview with, uh, with a kind of a hedge fund of the day, kind of big star. And after they were done the interview, he thought he got the job. He thought the interview went great. And a couple of weeks later, he found out he didn't get it, called this uh, uh, maverick of a man and just asked, you know, is there anything I could have done better in the interview? I thought I did pretty well. He goes, no, your interview uh, was great. You're just, uh, you know, you're the uh, um, the kid of uh, uh, blue collar people. This is uh, white collar dreams, not blue collar dreams. And I always thought that that was one a mean thing to say. Um, but secondly, I think that's what happens when you grow up. Uh, in the kind of environment I grew up in, which was uh, very, uh, you know, lower middle class. And and uh, sometimes when you get the huge events, sometimes you uh, think about, boy, do I belong here? How the heck did I get here? I, I would have told myself uh, that, boy, you've accomplished a lot and you should really enjoy this experience because you deserve it. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk about that blue collar dream concept because I found that fascinating. And, you know, you wrote that, you were good enough to dream. You were good enough to be recruited. You were good enough to play pro ball to get into the series. But that's where it ended. And what do you think it, it actually is that happens? And, and when I was thinking about this and I was trying to understand it, I thought about my boys. You know, we're we're basically middle class. And, and I put them in a preparatory Catholic high school. And the kids that they went to school with were, you know, they were in line to be CEOs and judges and, yeah. and so forth. And for my kids to achieve that, there would be a story attached to it, where with these other kids, it's just expected of them, and they know that. And do you think that that's what it is? I think you're very clear. I think uh, for some, it's a rite of passage. For others, it's it's so daunting. I mean, for my childhood, but neither of my parents graduated from high school. So when I got into Yale, and I'm, I'm the same, I went to uh, all-boys college preparatory school, um, I was expected to excel in schools. I, I was expected to, to be the first one in my family to go to college. And, and when I got there, I just kind of realized how different I was than for a lot of kids who, who uh, going to Yale was a, a rite of passage. It was a, a, a normal turn of events. For me, it was like winning the lottery. You know what I mean? Uh, so it, it was a, it was a different existence for me. Not that uh, I didn't enjoy it as much as they did, but uh, I, I did feel that responsibility and onus uh, to live up uh, to all those things that my parents wanted to happen for me, and uh, and that's a little different than than, than some of my uh, classmates who were uh, had had a BMW on campus mm -hmm. uh, exactly. while I. Uh, <laughs> while I walk everywhere. It is a different existence, and, and your boys uh, are going to um, be rewarded and, and enjoy it down the road, um, maybe even more than some that uh, comes a little more easier to. And, you know, Ron, you talk about overcoming obstacles. I mean, in high school, a recruiter told you that you didn't have what it, what it would take to play in the majors. And then on top of that, you switched to being a pitcher in college. I mean, is that even possible today that someone could take up pitching in college and then make it to the pros? No, I think because, uh, you know, we are trying to. And I tried not to do this with my children. You know, we live in a world where, you know, by the time you're seven or eight years old, you should be uh, specialized in mm -hmm. what you're going to do and who you're going to become. And boy, that is just uh, um, what a daunting and awful thing, I think, to do to our kids. I think, I think we, we definitely want to kind of push them to where they want to go. But the, you know, the bottom line is, is I want, I want them to be kids too, and to enjoy that. And, uh, you know, we live in a world where, you know, our kids are at school all day and then they have two, three hours of homework to do. And, 
and uh, when's the time that they can be kids? Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we've got to, as parents and we've got to, as educators and, um, you know, make our priorities a little different. They do it in, the, in European countries and they do a great job of it. And hopefully we get better at it here. Ron, from everything you've experienced, what advice do you offer to kids who want to pursue a dream, whether it be to play major league ball or anything else? Yeah, um, you know, I'm asked all the time, you know, what what can parents do to make themselves um, a professional athlete? And uh, I I, I want to kind of chuckle when I hear that because you don't really Mm -hmm. find major league sports. They kind of find you. And I think it's it's the same with with other kind of – um, you know, those jobs that you aspire to. I think you can only make yourself as good as you can make yourself, as smart as you can make yourself, um, have great self-worth. And if you're that kind of personality, then that job that you love is going to find you. You're going to find it. Uh, but taking care of oneself, whether it's uh, education, whether it's self-worth, how good you feel, uh, all of those things I think are, are going to push you to what you're passionate about. And I, and I think that, you know, the older I get, uh, the things that I'm really passionate about are the things that I'm really good at. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you're really passionate about it and you become very good at it, somehow you'll be able to make a living at it. And uh, that would be my best piece of advice. Ron, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What do you want to leave our listeners with? What I want to leave our, our, your listeners with is that, you know, it's it's all right, you know, to live your dream. It's all right to have that moment, and it's all right if the moment doesn't come out perfectly. I think we have uh, all of our lives, our, our series of, uh, of things that don't go perfectly, but we work around it and get to the place that we want to be. Um, I, I, I just think that we put so much pressure on ourselves uh, to live a perfect life uh, when there is no perfect life. There's just a life. And uh, to enjoy it and be in the present uh, while you're doing it is the only way to really thrive. Ron, thank you so much for being here. I I have to tell you, this is the second time my sons have paid attention. The first time was Jim (laughs) Abbott and now you. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you uh, so much for having me. Your show is is fantastic. It's uplifting. And it's uh, exactly what uh, what, uh, we all need right now. We'll be right back. Are you having trouble finding time to post on social media? Do you worry that you're posting too much or maybe not enough? Is it hard to keep track of what you've already posted? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures with a social media simplified tip. Use a scheduler. There are hundreds of social media schedulers that are available on the internet, but they're all designed to do one thing. Make your social media posting simpler. A scheduler is designed for you to keep multiple social media posts all in one place. You write the post in advance and then schedule individual posts for specific days. The scheduler does the rest for you, so you don't have to go in and post every day. For example, you can post seven days worth of posts at one time, and then the scheduler will handle putting it up on your selected social media platform on the day and time you have it set up for. A few of my favorites are Hootsuite, Loomly, and Mav Social. No, they don't pay me to say their names. I've actually used them, and I find them simple to navigate. You can also schedule your posts in Facebook directly. Look for the tab at the top that says Publishing Tools and follow the instructions. There are also a few Instagram-only schedulers like Planoly or Later, which can help you put in numerous posts at a time to see how your social media looks before you press the Send button. They also allow you to post in advance to help make your social media simpler and easier. If you need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, social media simplified with Sue. When you try to get into your dream college, against whom are you really competing and what can you do about it? Hey, I'm Scott Doty from Brainstorm Tutoring. I'm a professional academic mentor and performance coach. This is the time of year if you have a child who's a rising senior or have a friend who has a student of that age, this is the magic moment. It's time to get together your school list and give yourselves the best shot at getting into great school matches for your son or daughter. But how do you find those matches? Who are you really competing against? 
You might see on paper that a school has a general acceptance rate, but what you really want to consider is who else from your town and from your high school, from your region of the country is applying to that school. Those are the people against whom you are really competing. If you're from northern New Jersey or New York City, you're competing against other kids from that area for spots at that school. You're not really competing against kids from Puerto Rico or Colombia or Spain or even Utah. You're competing against kids in your zip code. And what can you do about that? What you want to do is you want to find creative options of places to apply that are less obvious. If everyone in town is applying to Fordham, find a school that's like Fordham, but somewhere else. Maybe look into Butler or Santa Clara. If you love UPenn, but everyone else applying there, check out Rice in Texas. If you love URI, how about Towson in Maryland? Or if you like Sacred Heart, how about Endicott or Merrimack in Massachusetts? There's always another option that's less obvious so that you maximize your chances of admission. If you want to check out more from me and my company, please check out stormthetest.com. The trick is to enjoy life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones ahead. I recently stumbled upon this quote by Marjorie Pay Hinckley. Marjorie's words got me to thinking about my life and how I've rushed most of it away, not being fully present or savoring the joy of any moment. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones. When I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to grow up so I could drink or go to college or even get married. When my children were infants and toddlers, I muddled through most days in anticipation of the evening when they would go to sleep, and I thought about when they would be older and more self-sufficient. When I was the caregiver for my parents, I struggled through those years frazzled and exhausted. When I held job positions that were unfulfilling, I wished for the day that I would find employment that made me happy. Looking back, I can't recall one period in my life in which I wasn't looking ahead to something different or better. The sad thing is that it took tremendous loss to wake me up. The loss of my marriage, the deaths of my parents and siblings, my children growing up and moving on with their lives. Now, I strive to live in the present moment. All those quotes about leaving the past behind and not worrying about the future are so true. When you live in the past or try to anticipate the future, you miss the here and now. So what can you do? When you're dealing with a challenge, look for the positive and learn from the experience. If you're caring for a sick loved one, treasure every minute because I promise you one day you would give anything to nurse that person again. If your children are driving you crazy, remember that sooner than you'll like, they will be moving out and starting their own lives. All the seemingly insignificant moments, both good and bad, are, as Paul Anka said, the times of your life. Enjoy them all. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. today to talk about sexual identity and self-esteem is Jennifer Davis, a life coach and sexologist. Jennifer is an advisor for Nothing But Advice. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. Hi. So, Jennifer, when we hear the word sexual identity, what does that mean? Uh, Well, a lot of people do get the term actually confused. Um, So, sexual identity is how you feel sexually. It is literally who you're sexually attracted to and how you feel when you are sexually attracted. So does a person usually know his or her sexual identity by a particular age? No, there is no particular age. One of the things about sexuality in general is that it's fluid. It's constantly changing. There are people who very early off in age know exactly how they feel about their sexuality, know, you know, how they feel about their gender identity, their sexual identity, and so forth and so on. And then those are, there are people who need help discovering or accepting how they feel about that. Um, and that is, you know, a lot of what, what I deal with. So... When you're looking at as actual age, that is not specific. And, you know, it can change and evolve throughout time. Um, You may identify yourself heterosexual, um, and then as life changes happen and everything, you may define yourself as, you know, bisexual, homosexual, or even, you know, queer or lesbian. Is it common for people to have these types of questions? Perfectly natural to question, especially in today's society. Politically and socially, yes, we are progressing as far as acceptance of alternative lifestyles. However, you know, it's still one of those things that it's 
a culture that we don't understand. And if we are in a very closed community, a, a community that's very conservative um, or very religious, um, then those things influence our acceptance of our own sexual identity. And that can cause a lot of internal conflict and struggle. It can be very overwhelming and it can be very confusing for people. So having questions about who you are sexually, perfectly natural. What can a person do to help make sense of what he or she might be experiencing? Talk to somebody you trust. Whether that's a professional therapist, you know, or an advisor or a life coach um, like myself or somebody who, you know, has a, a deeper understanding of, you know, sexuality in itself or just somebody that you, you trust with that information, you know, those questions, a friend, a family member, even a religious, you know, leader, if that's, you know, where you where you're having conflicts, there's nothing wrong with having those those doubts in yourself. So it's perfectly natural to want to talk to somebody about it, but it's also perfectly normal to want to keep that inside. However, you need to express it and you need to do it with somebody that you can trust. And that is the biggest part. And being around somebody who's going to be supportive of you, who's going to help you and encourage you to discover your own identity. Jennifer, for the rest of us, what do you want people to know when it comes to someone who may have a different identity? What should we all be trying to understand? There are so many things that I would love to say. <laughs> um, to narrow it down very quickly, I would have to say we don't have a choice. Our sexual identity is imprinted on us when we're born. It develops over our lifespan. And as said earlier, it's fluid. It's always changing and evolving depending on experiences and our self-acceptance. We shouldn't, you know, ostracize people who are either exploring or have identified as something different than ourselves. Jennifer, thank you so much for spending time with us. If you would like to learn more about Nothing But Advice, or if you want to hear more conversations about mental health issues, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash nothingbutadvice. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.